be seated. Thank you for joining us in praying. And uh, take out your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. At this time, our third through fifth grade is dismissed to go to their class. And we're going to study Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our series Under the Sun. Really excited to jump into this text. Uh, I want to say how great it was to hang out with so many of our men this weekend uh, at Man Down. We had 55 plus guys from our church go join uh, about uh, 80 others to uh, just spend time in worship, hanging out with one another, uh, eating meals together, and it was a huge, huge blessing, and so it was great to be with you. If you weren't able to be there, I hope, uh, hope you can make it next year, October 4th and 5th, 2024. We're already scheduled. You can put it on your calendar and, uh, and be there with us, but we had a great time. Uh, thank you for those who prayed for Man Down. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, we've been in this series, Under the Sun, and really the, the writer, uh, uh, the teacher, has been taking us through every category we could possibly think about, Right? Everything we could think about in life where we might find what is really substantive and lasting. And we've been on this exploration and in every category that he's opened up, he has come around and said that essentially this thing touched by the corruption of the world under the sun is vanity. And we talked about how vanity means like a vapor or a mist, that, that we look for all of those things in life under creation, under the sun, uh, and, and on our own, and we think they're substantive, and we grab onto that thing, and when we have it in our hands, we find out it's really nothing in the end. It doesn't last. It may last for a while, but it dissipates. It disappears. It's like a vapor. And we ask, what is eternal? What matters? Where can we find the substance that we can really give our lives to? And we talked about that vanity, that sense of mist, and we talked about the Hebrew word for it so we could remember it. And what's that word? Hevel. Yeah. Hevel. Whether it's smoke that is gone, 
a mist that fades, chasing after the wind to try to bottle it up. Whatever that picture is, it's something we try to wrap our hands around and make the substance of life, but then we realize it too will leave us unsatisfied under the sun, that our only real hope and joy for anything eternal is God's sustaining blessing and God's purposes that are above the sun, that are above the perspective that we have, uh, and particularly this under the sun idea is that, that the world we live in has been corrupted by sin that we're that we experience the fallenness and the curse that the world is under because of sin because of our collective decision to rebel against God then God has removed some sense of his blessing and everything is hevel we think that's going to be it I'm going to give my life to that and then it fades But this morning we come to a topic that we automatically go, this has to be it. And and we come to the topic of worship and and, and our spiritual direct engagement with God. And we we would be tempted to think here in our worship, our acts of spiritual activity, certainly we are safe from the danger of living in vanity. And he says, don't be so fast. That would be like assuming in the middle of the winter, in the cold, wintry place I grew up, when it had freezing rain, that I could just run down the steps and go out the door and not have to worry about the ice that was on those steps and finding that my foot had slipped and slide down. Anybody ever fall down on the ice like that? And he begins this passage saying, guard your steps. There's something to watch out for even here when you begin to think about spiritual things and directly engaging with God. There's the danger of vanity. Vanity even in our worship. Did you know that our worship can be vain and empty? If we hear the core ideas in this text that we just read, we're going to hear a warning to pause and consider. An intention-grabbing exhortation, guard your steps when you go up to the house of God. Now here's a good summary where we're going in this passage. There's two pieces to it. So that we have a way to begin to wrap our head around what he's teaching here and what he wants us to consider as we think about the heart of this passage. If you look at the text, you'll see that it's divided up roughly into two sections. Many times it's already marked out in the paragraphs. They're pretty accurate here in, in this one in the ESV. You've got verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 7. And you look, you've got kind of two main idea or movements going on in the text. Verses 1 through 3 say we should be listeners to God's word rather than full of our own words. Verses 4 through 7 says that, that we should be careful to to do the things that we say to God we're going to do. And so we get this warning because it's serious if we don't follow through with the vows we make and the things that we say before God. In both instances, we're warned to move from worship that begins with us, thinks about our words, our dreams, our vision, to to first and foremost in worship thinking about God, who He is, and how the big picture of who He is should shape our lives. In our response. So here's the main idea 
If you're a note taker, here's the main idea we want to think about this morning. This is a calling to heed the warning that hasty, self-centered worship is also vanity. To heed the warning for us to hear this warning that hasty, self-centered worship is also vanity. It falls in this category under the sun as hevel, and we need to be thoughtful and guard our steps as we even think about how we approach God. There's this subtle possibility in our lives that we could have an approach, and this is, this is what I want us to think about this morning. There's this subtle possibility in your life and my life that we could have an approach to spiritual things that begins with us and our desires for God. Possibility of a worship that is filled with our words and our claims and appears to be substantive, but on further review in the end is just a vapor. It appears to be substantive, but it's really nothing. And so he gives us two ways to heed this warning, that we would examine our worship for vanity. And in the first three verses, he gives it to us this way. The first way to heed the warning and avoid vain worship, he says, is there in verses 1 through 3, to be attentive to God's words over our words. The way that we avoid vain worship, he says, is that we consider and pause and slow down and consider God's words over ours. I want you to notice in the text that the first way in which the author explores this warning really is to give us a contrast in verses 1 and 2. It's a contrast between two things. The contrast, he says, between drawing near to listen and Offering the sacrifice of fools. What, what colorful language. You know, it gives you a new thing you can say when somebody's running their mouth. Oh, look, the sacrifice of fools. That's the picture. Just all those words. Unthoughtful, careless. I need to fill the silence with noise. So we've got this contrast going on between drawing near to listen in our worship and offering the sacrifice of fools. Lots of words, not much substance. That's how he describes the contrast in verse 1. A listening posture versus a speaking or offering posture. Do you know that God in our worship is not first and foremost considering, concerned about our offering, our doing, but our listening, our receiving, our understanding of who he is. We get a contrast then in verse 2, a posture where we let our words be few because we recognize God is the one who is in heaven. He's not stuck with this perspective of being under the sun and limited and wondering what matters. So we would let our words be few because there's a God above who speaks and has spoken and gives direction to us gives clarity and knowledge who has unfolded his character and life and purposes in his word. And so we're to draw near to listen and let our words be few rather than the contrast under the sun where we're rash with our mouths and our hearts are full of thoughts that we want to speak. You see the contrast? Now by speaking about the house of God here, He's describing the most direct times of our worship. That's what he's doing. 
you know, which in the Old Testament would have been the physical temple, and now, really, in Christ, we as gathered saints on the Lord's day are the temple. <laughs> We're the people, wherever we gather. You know, this, this, this place, I mean, physically, when we think about coming up to the house of God, uh, we, we certainly, I, I don't know about you, but I don't really think of Potomac Shores Middle School as the house of God. And we've met in Swans Creek Elementary School, the Boys and Girls Club, that weird little tire shop, depending on how long you've been with us, under a pavilion in a park. None of those places were physically, representationally the house of God, but wherever God's people gather, we read in Scripture that, 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 that together we are God's temple, His Spirit dwells in us. And so when we plan to come on the Lord's Day, which has been set aside for us to worship and gather together with the saints, we're coming up to the house of God. We're coming to worship with one another. It's, it's, it's the most direct time in most of our week where we encounter and think about God significantly and with genuine concentration. But he's saying, you know, as he talks about the house of God, and says to be careful when we go up to the house of God, he's not saying only then, but because that's our most focused often time of worship in our life, he's, he's, he, that's the way he gets at how our entire spiritual life goes. Everything you do to engage God is a matter of worship, but since this is the clearest place where we can examine it, we examine it here so that when we leave this place and we're thinking about our own prayers and interacting with God, we're also thinking, I gotta be God-centered. I wanna know first what God has to say. I wanna be centered on His words and be a listening person to His word before I'm telling God what I want and praying to God what I wanna be given and declaring what I'm gonna do. I need to have times and moments in my life where I'm just before God asking how His Word should shape me. Now we can imagine someone here reading this passage whose heart before God is busy. He came into worship this morning. They've got all their thoughts about life, their ideas about what ought to be happening, what God should be like what he ought to care about in the current events. Maybe you, came, maybe you came in this morning to sing the songs, engage in the service, but it's out of desire to have your own words and your own thoughts about things affirmed or confirmed. You just want a, a place to express yourself. The church ought to give me this place where I can say what I think about God, what I want from God, what I think we ought to consider important. A church where everything begins with what people want and takes time to always be attentive to people's preferences and is like a therapy listening session for everyone's thoughts about God. I'll tell you right now, you spend time in church leadership culture, you'll find there's a lot of people who will tell you this is how you ought to think about worship. Now, I found myself in difficult times. You know, none of you have to come here today. Like, you know, I'm, I'm well aware that some of you will never come back here. Like this is your last Sunday. Coming up to gather. And you know, honestly, we want you here. We want you to be a part of this community, this mission. We want, we want you to be drawn to this God we love. And sure, there, there are tons of other churches, wonderful churches in our own community. 
that you can go to and grow, and we're not the only church to get connected with. But honestly, we, we want you to connect with this church. We, we believe in what we're doing. We want you to see the value of that. And I'm so aware of, of, of a sense like you probably got preferences about what ought to be going on here. You want this place to connect with you. And, and, and I feel the burden to connect with you and do that and think, what does connect? And church leaders, they do this. Your pastors, everywhere you're going, thinking, how do we connect? Maybe we're doing the wrong things and people don't want to be a part. We're not getting across what we need to. You know, people don't want what they used to want you got to do this if you're going to have a church that's growing and people coming to it and, you know, they fill in the blank, all kinds of stuff, right? Man, that's, you gotta, you got to let people tell you what they want out of church, what you want from church. That's not good. That's not what this is talking about. Maybe you hear this and you think of somebody in your life group when any time that, you get together and you start, start talking about the Bible, immediately then they just start talking about their own personal opinions. They got a ton of stuff to say. They can't think and process and let it get to heart, like what needs to change. You're like, oh, the words, the words, the words. So many things to say, but we're not even talking about what the Bible says. Don't start trying to figure out who you are in your life group. All right? Don't have this conversation at your life group. Right, I was thinking about this. We don't have any of those, just in case you're wondering, you're in my life group. We don't have any in ours right now, right? <laughs> Except for I've been that guy. I'm an extrovert. And I, you know, I want to talk. I want to think out loud. I want to do all those things. And, and some, of, some of your introverts are saying, yes, this passage says, just be quiet, please. And all the introverts in the room just thought, I know some extroverts like that. I just wish they'd stop talking. Well, we may all agree because worship that begins with God and God's words or instruction requires us to be quiet. Consider deeply what is being instead, instead of dealing with our discomfort by just saying stuff. But before the introverts walk away in victory, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes pushes us to realize we're not just to be concerned with the out loud talking per se, but even with what our heart is uttering. Oh, the troubling part of this passage is say, don't be hasty in your heart to utter a word before God. Oh, don't, don't tell me that the introvert that's sitting here that almost has never breathed the word in their small group and I've never spoken with isn't, doesn't have a whole conversation going on in their heart. Saying lots of things, even this morning, about what you see and what you want, what you think ought to happen. Processing it all down in there. And there's nothing wrong with processing. But he says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty. To utter a word before God. Do you know your hearts speak all the time even when your mouth's not speaking? And so there's a call here to not just quiet our mouths, but to quiet our hearts about what we're concerned with. At the heart of this, though the text shows us that this is not just a problem with talking or not talking, but a failure to recognize who is in the room. You see, he's not just saying, oh, come into the room, you know, because you should talk or not talk. And if you do, decide which one of those you do, and you can just be quiet and empty yourself, that's, that, that's good. But the problem, he says, isn't so much with our talking and not talking, but our failure to recognize who's present. 
It's that God is in heaven where he reigns from and he's present here in our conversation, in our worship. He's the centerpiece. He's the one that we, have to, we ought to have our eyes fixed on. So all of our talking and casualness and unseriousness can be a failure to recognize that we've come before God today. And if we're wise, we would quiet ourselves and ready ourselves to hear what he has to say. When I still believed in reality TV, um, I used to enjoy watching the show called Undercover Boss. Any Undercover Boss fans out there? It's old, CBS, I think. Um, They would disguise the CEO of some big company as like a regular worker, you know, in the company, and they would work among the common folk, you know, people like us. And... uh, The CEO would ask questions and get the people talking about things, you know. There they were with just their fellow worker, man. And some people would just open their mouths and start saying what it was like. You know, they would give them a job to, like, train the the boss. And they'd be like, oh, you don't have to do that. Don't worry about that. You can skip that part and go cut that corner. It's kind of dumb that this thing, you know, they would just kind of open themselves. They're just relaxed and just talking to another person. Nobody important in the room. Then they'd have these reveals at the end where all of a sudden they discovered this person they'd been like uh, running their mouth beside was the CEO. And you, they would always have the same reaction. They would, you'd see them like going, what did I say? Oh no, what did I say? You ever had that moment where you just realized who someone was and you're like, what did I say in that conversation? I hope I was careful. This is the heart of what he's here. He's like, we got somebody better than the CEO, more important than the CEO that we're before when we come into worship, that we're interacting with in worship and in the sort of reverence and, and fear about the power that God has over our lives. We ought to approach how we talk, how we move, how we should guard our step. Because God deserves reverence and worship and honor. And when he's in the room... We should stop talking and begin listening. That's his point. (laughs) Because since you couldn't find substance anywhere else in your life, maybe when you come up to worship, you should just let God do the talking. We're foolish if we act like he's not here and fail to recognize that in worship we should do what we do anytime someone of great importance has entered the room. Listen rather than talk. The fool's voice fills the moment with words and thoughts of their own and doesn't realize the magnitude of the person who is present in worship and at the center of it all. So this first thing, he's just saying just be quiet. And the second, the second thing that he says in verses 4 through 7 as we think about how to avoid vain worship is he instructs us to be attuned to God's plans before making our vows. Be attuned to God's plans before we start making promises about what we're going to do. So the writer turns our attention maybe to another aspect of worship we don't think about a, a lot. But this aspect of making vows, we're going to do a little work to get from their setting to ours for a moment as we think about that. It would have been a regular thing in worship for Israelites as they came up to the temple to think how they were going to leave that place and serve God. And it's, it's important for us to think about that. You know, often moments of worship refocus us and bring us to this place where we say, I need to do this. I need to respond this way. 
And sometimes that's even an impression upon our heart, deep impression. God, I'm committing here to do this. As a, as a pastor, I often call you to say, are there things that you need to just, you need to get with God and say, God, I, I'm going to do this before you. That's, a, that's not a bad thing to do. There are moments of consecration that ought to happen in our lives where we devote our attention and effort and, and our focus and some decision as we leave this place of worship to God for important things that we need to fulfill. And they would regularly do this as a part of their offerings. Maybe something you're going to change where you've been falling short. Maybe healing a relationship where sin has undermined and destroyed it. Maybe in the height and beauty of a time of worship with God, you determined you were going to do some great thing to serve God. Maybe you have some past thing you said you were going to do, but yet have been figuring out how to fulfill. Maybe give, give to some cause. Speak to some person about the gospel dedicate yourself to some aspect of serving him and advancing his kingdom it's right and good to do these things but the author warns us here to slow down and be intentional before we do it i think he's building on the idea that we need to hear what god actually cares about first before we make these vows and plans and then he's deepening it here as he goes into this second section but to do so, he's telling us that God takes these promises and vows we make in worship and prayer seriously. Way more serious than we do. I mean, I think, I think we just get in the habit of saying, God, I'm going to do this, or God, I want to do this. And, and we think, he's not taking us too serious. Certainly, he knows how flighty we are. How wishy-washy we can be, and he's probably not writing it down anywhere. I'm just going to go on with my life. But you know, we love to celebrate that God's attentive to our prayers when we're asking for help. But he's also attentive to our prayers when we're making promises. When we're devoting things to him. He's hearing it. He's thinking about it. He's waiting for us to respond to it. So he begins this exploration in verse 4 by telling us when we make a vow or commitment to God, we should not delay in paying it. That we should, we should figure out when we're going to do it and do it. That if you've made commitments to the Lord, that you're to fulfill those, not to wait until some time when you hope he fulfills them for you. God finds no comedy in the person who blows it off, he says. It's not a joke or trivial. In verse 5 he says it's better to not make the vow than to vow and not keep it. Some of us who've made marriage vows would do well to consider the weightiness of that. Whether we're seeking to keep the true promises we made, for example, because we made them to God first and foremost before our spouse. The reason we call them vows is because they're, they're two people, but they're a commitment to God. They're a promise to Him. And we're to receive them with a sense of power, a sense of responsibility. Now, in a broken world, that can... It can be really, really tough to sort out sometimes. I'm happy to acknowledge that there are times where somebody's spouse makes it impossible almost to fulfill what we imagined that vow was going to look like. And it's, it's incredibly painful. 
And I certainly wouldn't want to speak to someone here who is, has labored and desires to see that fulfilled but no way to do it because of a decision of a spouse or something that's happened. You know, that, we grieve with you, lament the fact that, that, that in a broken world that that is the case. We'd want you to find comfort in the grace of God and to continue to think, how can I still honor the God, Lord when I think of that person? But, I'd be falling short of a pastor as a pastor if I didn't speak to, to what the calling is for, for all of us as we think about these sort of vows. <laughs> you know, most of you probably have never formally made a vow to God other than marriage vows for those of you who've been married. And it's not just about avoiding divorce, <laughs> right? Those vows said something more than I won't divorce you. They said something like, I'm going to lay aside my life to make sure you flourish. I'm going to stop thinking about all the desires that I have so that you have the opportunity to thrive. I'm going to guard you, protect you, love you, protect the unity of this relationship. I'm going to nurture it. I'm going to cherish it. And, you know, by the time marriages get to me, I'm just going to be honest with you, by the time they get to me, most of the time, the cherishing, the nourishing, the serving has been over for a long time. And I'm just doing damage control as a pastor with other brothers, elders that, that work with that or counselors we work with. Because back, and back there, and often, I've, listen, I'm just being blunt for a second. Often that's just damage control with at least one of the people in the relationship who doesn't really care to renew the sense those vows had. And they think it's, they think it's someone else's fault. Always everyone else's fault but theirs. But I want you to notice the vow before God that you made, not the one your spouse made, is your responsibility. Husband, wife, both. It is your responsibility to see how can my heart be fully in honoring the Lord and nurturing these vows and, and being swift to keep what God has recorded in his book that I've spoken. This is important. He goes further in verse 6 to say, not just about that vow, but all vows. Don't let your mouth lead you to sin. Meaning, before you say you're going to do something for God, you should know to take it seriously. This isn't just some other person you're speaking of. This is especially important because he says that when we've told God things we would do, it will not work later to say, I made a mistake when I said that. Back to marriage for a moment. I can't tell you how many times when people are struggling in marriage that I've heard that one. We shouldn't have gotten married. Uh, you got married. Vows have been made. In fact, it's so important for that type of vow and any vow we make to God that the author here says we should recognize a great risk in not fulfilling our vows to God or following through on things we said we would do spiritually. The risk is that we draw God's anger toward us. I know most of us don't really think of God as ever being angry at something we've done. But you know, God looks on some of the works of our hands and despises it. <laughs> Would rather see us fail in all other things to be renewed back to keeping our promises. And he says, you know, why do you want to draw, why do you want to take, make flippant vows, not follow through and, and draw God's disgust on your life? <laughs> 
You go, you think you're going to just thrive doing whatever you want and you're not going to fulfill what you promised to me? Like, I'm not here for just pouring out blessing on you while you destroy your, your life and other people's lives. While you just think about interacting with me in flippant ways. I want something way better than that for you. He says, why tempt God with that sort of experience? Why draw that kind of attention? Now the warning of the text builds off that thought that God is of infinite importance, deserves our greatest sense of reverence. He should be appropriately feared because he has the power to prosper and he has the power to destroy. And we don't get to tell the almighty God what rules of ours that he should play by. I mean, this is just so sobering. When we begin to think about how people think about God, how maybe we have thought about God, this is almighty God who, who has all power over our lives to both bless and destroy the things that we are setting out to accomplish. We need to hear from Him and align ourselves. So to round out this section, the teacher comes back to the idea of dreams. When dreams increase and words grow many, he says, Meaning when we get inspired to do something, we're often quick to assume we should do it and make vows about what we're going to do and ask God to bless those things and make our plans and strategies without thinking. It seems obvious to me at the back of this is Solomon, the source of this text, thinking about his father David vowing to build a temple. It seemed to be his dream. And then being informed by God that this isn't what God intended for him to do. It's something that God was going to do for him. He wasn't going to be the one to do it. It was a wayward dream. You got ahead of my plan, David. You should have begun with my purposes and plans and not your own. They're much bigger, more beautiful, more glorious. Worship begins with God and invites us to respond to what is clear about God. It doesn't begin with us and then ask for God's blessing. And so in all of our strategies and plans and promises and what we're going to do and vows we would make, we begin with God and say, God, what's important to you so I can orient my life around you? And, and so much of what passes for Christian spirituality is just simple, self-centered self-help that says, I have all these things I want, God, all these ways I want to live, the things I want to accomplish. Please come and bless me. And then we're angry at God when he doesn't fulfill our dreams. But we never stop to think, maybe I was supposed to be turning that around. And a part of what God has desired to do. So this text is just so rich with these two ideas. And I thought there are just tons of pastoral applications. And I decided just then to, to get here in this point of the sermon, just stack them at the end and tell, tell you them. If you haven't got an application point yet out of this, here we go. This is the lightning round. Here's some things that as I thought about this would be important for us to hear and for us to think about as we seek to apply these words. So here's the first one. The first one is center the church on the word of God. Like we are to center the church on the word of God. If these words are true and God's left his word, it's spoken and left a record of it for us in scripture like he has, then we should center our life as a church, our worship and communion with God on hearing and understanding what he has already spoken. It's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, equips us for every good work. The scripture that God has breathed, his, his word that he's delivered. Listen, 
As your pastor, I'm unashamed about the fact that we spend so much time learning and studying God's word when we come together for worship. I, I know, I already know that some people when they come in new to our congregation or, or they're coming in, they have to get over a barrier that, where, where we have 45-minute sermons. And that's when I'm trying really hard. Now listen, I, I have no interest in, in having long sermons. I tremble at my words being not few. <laughs> but I, I hope because of the way we approach God's word, it's re- this isn't really about me and my words, it's about us and his word. And we come together and we do what we do in worship because of passages like this that say we need to hear more than we need to talk. And God has given us a word, a rich word that we need to mine and dig into. I feel a constant tension with the time that we have together to do other things or shorten the experience or hear whatever the most recent fad or suggestion is about how to really engage people's spirituality. I remember early in ministry they said, People's attention span are now down to 22 minutes. That's all you've got for a sermon. Well, I'm sorry. We better reload halfway through and say God is in the room. He's visited us this morning. He's given us his word. He's got more to say. We got all kinds of time. We're going to watch a three-hour football game later. But we can only handle 22-minute sermons. Now, I'll tell you, I have a commitment. I want the preaching from this pulpit to be good every Sunday. Prepared, serious, thoughtful. But that doesn't mean that we're always ready to come in and listen. (laughs) That doesn't mean that every person who came here today understands how important it is for us to flip this and go, I need to hear from God. Like, I'm bored already. I'm thinking about lunch and work and stresses and i get it listen i have a i i have to work on my attention span but those are just the things that will keep us living from our own ideas under the sun if we don't give ourselves wholeheartedly to hearing god's word now maybe you're thinking pastor it's your job to center the church on the word not ours that's untrue We all bear the responsibility for what we deem to be important around here. And someday you're going to go somewhere else and decide who you will join in worship and mission with as a church. And if there's an absence of really studying God's word, I want you to find somewhere else to go. I want you to be a part of that church because churches that will do that need you. They need you to say, this is it. This is the way. Let's hear God and then shape our lives around him. And I want to be on mission with those kind of people. And I want every person that's going to scatter here, if it's true that 90% of you are going to be gone in three years from this place, in my experience in 13 years of pastoring this church, that's true. I want you joining churches that are centered on the word. I want churches out there that are struggling, that are centering on the word, that want reinforcements. I want you to join their churches. And I want you to fuel those with a real passion that God can use, that can shape a culture of real, deep-rooted Christianity in this world. Because there is too much shallow, self-centered spirituality that is just garbage. So center the church on the word of God. Second, avoid a life of vain worship through knowing God's word personally. 
If our life is an act of worship, like the Apostle Paul says, then I want us to be certain of the fact that ignorance of God's word will be no excuse for living a spiritually foolish life. In working out your faith and offering your life to God, this passage makes it clear that God's words are so important, so much more important than any other knowledge that we could pursue, that to neglect them will be no refuge in the day when we stand before God and account for our lives. Let me say it plainly. If God has spoken it, you are responsible for it. I want you to think for a moment how much of God's word you understand, are aware of, and know of. If God has spoken it, you and I are responsible for it. That doesn't mean you're going to become a biblical scholar overnight. But you could take step one to know everything that's there. You may not have the answer to the question about what they all mean, but do you know what's there? Like, when's the last time you read through the whole Bible? Like, oh, man, that's big. It's not that big. I mean, we can binge watch stuff, right? And I get it. It's not entertainment. It's reading. It's thoughtfulness. It's slow. But he says, guard your step. (laughs) Slow down. Maybe it does something that's healthy for us that the binge-watch Netflix episode isn't going to do. And you're not going to be accountable that you saw every episode of fill-in-the-blank. But listen, God has spoken. He's given us His Word. We claim to be a people centered on it and thankful for it. If we don't know it, it's, and then in our ignorance, we're living lives that aren't shaped around who God is. That's to our detriment, and it's a curse. Man, I just want to motivate you. Like, get into God's Word yourself. Like, read it, study it, know it, understand it, wrestle with it. Listen, for years, I've had to wrestle with understanding the Bible, working through my own confusion, but what I've found is deeper and deeper and deeper wells that have shaped my life toward God. And I want you to have that, and I don't want you to think, you know, I'm not responsible for that. He says, we need to listen. And so, therefore, he gives us this responsibility. Listen, I want you to see how that helps you avoid worthless, vain sacrifices. You know, Cain killed Abel because God God corrected his sacrifice clearly with words, and he was too prideful to receive it. King Saul thought he was doing a good thing by sacrificing some animals as an act of worship when God had told him to destroy them, and he removed him from being king and said obedience to God is better than sacrifice. We don't have a better idea than attuning ourselves to words God has already delivered. David neglected what God had said about how to transport the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. God had spoken clearly, and David, in his zeal, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant down in, fell off the thing, and and someone lost their life. And David said, how unfair. And God said, I told you. And you might go, I don't know if I want a God like that. You only get the God that exists. And he's revealed himself in his word. David's heart was in the right place, but he ignored what God had already said. And some of you, I know you, I love you, your heart is in the right place. It's toward God, you desire God, but you have neglected his word. 
and you don't know it. Third, don't confuse your good ambitions with God's priorities. Self-centered religion makes priorities and plans that seem justifiable to us and then asks for God's blessings. But that is simply a self-exalting way to say, God, I want you to validate my ambitions. Bless my efforts. I'm obviously motivated to do good things, but let's, let's be honest. We, we often fail to give God the driver's seat in dreaming up our futures. Planning is good. Strategy is appropriate. But goals are good. But we must always carry our dreams, our goals, our plans with open hands, especially when the movement of God's hands through our lives and our church goes in a different direction. Fourth, keep your marriage vows. I won't labor long on this one, but in a world where we make few religious vows, the vows you made when you were married are your responsibility. I've already said this. The vow you made is not your spouse's responsibility. If you're like me, these words feel weighty. They run against the grain of our typical say whatever you want to God. Choose your own adventure, spirituality. Certainly, we should come to God with honesty. And this isn't about not coming to God with honesty and transparency. You can't come to God without honesty and transparency. But listen, we've got this like idolatrous culture of authenticity. Just whatever authentically starts with you, just say that, be that, do that. That's what God wants. No, 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 that's the first stop. Going on to maturity is recognizing God wants many other things different than you. You've got to first start with honesty, and, and you can bring all of that to God. But authenticity and spirituality is just the necessary starting place. If we're thoughtful at all, we'll be forced to reckon with the reality that God is above us. He has plans and designs and purposes for our lives that we are responsible to understand and discover. And he takes that serious and will require us to give an account. For this reason, we are to fear the Lord and let him have the highest priority in our lives. But if we were to hear these words, if we were to stop and listen, to stop our endless dreams and ambitions for a moment, what would we discover from the heart of God? We would discover that when we quiet ourselves before the Lord, we would discover that we are weaker than we thought. We have fallen far, far short, more short than we realize. But God isn't first calling us to change or do something. Notice, he said, stop speaking, stop doing, and give me your attention. What does he want our attention to say? (laughs) He's asking us to stop and listen and hear what he has done. When we stop presuming we know what we've got to get from God, we can discover in Christ what he has already done to welcome us into his house. We go up looking to say things and he's saying, listen, do you know why you can come in? I want you to come in. I want to roll out the carpet and lay out the table. And in Christ, I've already provided what you need. The vow has been made. The sacrifice has been set. It's been paid and you are welcome. Come on in and receive my abundant love and grace. If you're here today and you think God brought you here to lay a burden on you and to send you out doing hard things, He brought you in to listen and hear about His grace and His mercy and that your life can be renewed when you receive Christ by faith. 
We don't need to say anything more. We don't need to vow anything more. The most important thing He has said is already spoken in Christ at the cross. The most important act of our lives has already been accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We come to worship to celebrate what we've received. And then to be moved by it. Fueled by it. Transformed by it. And motivated by it. And you've been invited to put your hand over your mouth and receive this promise in humble thanksgiving. The good news isn't a fresh burden. It's discovering that God is the giver of everything that isn't vain. And he wants you to have it. He wants you to receive it. And sometimes with all of our words and doing, we just pass it right by. Let's pray. God, as we come together for this time of taking the Lord's Supper, help us to remember what we've received. We acknowledge you're a great and glorious God. Your holiness called for a sacrifice. But your love was willing to send it for us in Christ. Lord, we are rich. We receive your promise in Jesus' name.